poison takes so many forms. Welcome to The Internet Says It's True, a show where we learn something new every week. We are part of the WCBE podcast experience, and my name is Michael Kent. Today, we're going to be talking about prohibition and one of the lesser known stories about it. I'd like to invite you to submit a topic to the show. So if you know something that sounds like it's made up, but it's actually true, go to the internet says it's true.com and there's a form right there on the homepage for you. Also, make sure you go join the Facebook page for this podcast. Just search for us on Facebook. It's pretty easy to find. Same with Twitter and Instagram, all the social stuffs. I've been putting 60 second versions of some of these stories on TikTok. It's at Michael Kent Live on TikTok. So, uh, you know, comment, say, hey, I heard the podcast about this. It was pretty good. So people hear that and they go and do the same thing. Finally, before we get to the show, I'd like to ask you to join the Patreon. You can do that for a dollar a month. And that's where we post the unedited videos of our guest quizzes and some other goodies. It's patreon.com slash Michael Kent. Now, today's topic comes from me. Uh, This is a story that I saw as a meme on Facebook. It was just like a graphic that said, did you know that the U.S. government killed 10,000 people with poisoned alcohol during Prohibition? And no, I did not know that. So I thought that uh, it would make a good topic for the show since I had never heard that story and it sounds scary. So let's get into it. World War One is over and so are America's days of legal alcoholic drink. Convinced self-sacrifice and sobriety will bring prosperity and peace as it won victory in war, Americans praise passing of the dry law and then promptly proceed by every possible means to repeal 18th Amendment. Here's shy Andrew J. Volstead, father of act that became federal law January 16, 1920. And then enforcement begins. In Boston, as in every other city, government agents fight hopelessly against illegal liquor. These homemade stills are but a few of thousands seized and destroyed. Other thousands produce millions of gallons, and countless hundreds prosper in business of bootlegging. Prohibition in the United States began because of religion. Piastic Protestants, which are similar to Lutherans, really got the bull rolling on the banning of alcohol in America. They saw all these problems in America, the falling apart of families, violence, and political corruption, as all starting with the bottle. So they took their movement to the political parties in America and found support in all of the parties. After a number of states outlawed alcohol, the Volstead Act federalized it and really put prohibition in place. Basically, the 18th Amendment was ratified in January of 1919, which passed with 68% support in the House and 76% support in the Senate. It outlawed the production, transportation, and sale of intoxicating liquors, but it said nothing about consuming them. So the Volstead Act was passed shortly thereafter, which had three main parts. One, prohibiting intoxicating beverages such as liquor, beer, and alcohol. Two, regulating the manufacture, production, use, and sale of alcohol for non-beverage purposes. And three, ensuring that there was enough alcohol available for scientific research and non-beverage manufacturing uses. So after that, At midnight on January 17th of 1920, Prohibition was officially the new law and would remain that way for 13 years. There were many side effects of Prohibition. First of all, it was enforced unevenly. Much like modern-day drug laws, it affected poor working-class people much more than the wealthy elite. See, rich people could have an entire cellar full of booze with little problem, but a working-class family would get busted for getting caught with a single bottle. 
bootlegging began to spread across the country. Immediately after Prohibition went into effect, small portable stills were being sold all over America. There were more than 7,000 violations of the law on the books in the first six months. More than 30,000 speakeasies popped up in New York City alone. Some companies got creative to help people get their booze. For instance, the Vine Glow Company made bricks of concentrated grapes for grape juice. Not illegal, but if you let it sit for a while, it would ferment and you'd get wine. How did people know how to do this? Well, Vine Glow wanted to make sure people knew how to keep their product from becoming illegal, so they printed the instructions right there on the label to explain how to make wine out of their product. You know, so people could not do that for the sake of the law. If you wanted to drink legally, you got a medical license to drink alcohol. Much like a modern-day weed card, it was easy to find a doctor to prescribe you alcohol. For the rule breakers, bootlegging continued along with speakeasies, and all of this required people to transport the illegal booze around the country. Rum running and bootlegging. By the way, here's something I learned. Rum running refers to smuggling booze by water, bootlegging by land. I hadn't heard that distinction before. And in the case of bootlegging, Rum that was manufactured mostly in the mountains of Appalachia needed to be distributed around the country, so people souped up their cars to be able to evade the police. The guys who souped up these cars became competitive about it, and this eventually led to what we now call NASCAR. People were finding any way they could to get alcohol. One of these ways was using industrial alcohol to make homemade booze, sometimes called bathtub gin. The government obviously didn't like the idea that people were still trying to get their hands on alcohol, so they continued taking steps to make it difficult. One of these steps was modifying the alcohol used to make the drinks. A lot of bootleggers were stealing the alcohol that had been produced for industrial use, ethyl alcohol. So the government ordered the denaturation of alcohol products. This way the alcohol could still be used for industrial or non-beverage purposes, but would be rendered undrinkable. Drinking the denatured alcohol would either just taste disgusting or would flat out make the drinker sick. But as people figured out ways to filter out the denaturing agents, the government got tougher. They put more and more deadly chemicals into it. One of these was the combination of methyl alcohol. Four parts methanol, two and a quarter parts pyridine base, and 0.5 parts benzene per 100 parts ethyl alcohol. When word of this got to New York medical examiners, they said, don't do it, people will die. But it didn't stop them. We're talking about a time when people were ingesting sterno, the things that you see at buffet tables to keep the food hot, just for its alcohol content. Sure, it might make you a little sick, but if you're an alcoholic, that's the chance you take. Well, this particularly dangerous combination of ingredients in denatured alcohol ended up being a horrible idea. We'll get into the results after a quick break. Are you ready to launch your new career in coding? Treehouse has one of the best and most affordable online classrooms for you. At Treehouse, we've rethought the learning process and built a proven system to get you the skills and knowledge you need to achieve your goals. When you're done with a course, you haven't just watched a video, you learned, practiced, and absorbed a concept. Or choose to build a portfolio, create a network, and land your dream job with our boot camp style tech degree program. Learn a dev job this year. Whatever your goal, we'll get you there. Start your seven-day free trial today. Go to the deals page on my website. The link is in the show notes. I've been traveling again lately, and that means I've been wearing my Scotty Vest jacket, which is awesome for anyone who sort of lives life on the go like I do. 
It's been awesome for traveling around because it's got tons of pockets for all my gadgets, my phone, my glasses, my wallet, my charging cord, you name it. It's a clothing company I believe in, and I'm confident they've got an article of clothing that you'll love. The best thing you can do is take a look at all the awesome pocket-packed clothing on their website. To get 15% off your order, visit the link in the show notes. Everything is impermanent. Nothing lasts forever. And if you want to enjoy life, you've got to take a leap and live in the moment. One Week Tees is a new t-shirt company that takes that idea to heart. Every week they release a fun new design on a t-shirt, then they permanently retire it after one week. If you don't jump on it, you miss out on it forever. So in effect, every t-shirt they sell is limited edition. At noon every Monday, the new design gets released and the old one goes away. It's a pretty great idea, especially if you want to have a shirt that you can almost guarantee no one else will have. Check out One Week Tees on Facebook and Instagram to see their new design each week. It's the number one week tees. Or check out their website at oneweektees.com. And because you listen to this podcast, use the promo code INTERNET to get 10% off your order. The link is in the show notes. There was a time that humans used 100% organic products as healing balms and moisturizers for their skin. Well, I've partnered with an awesome company that wants to get back to those times. Fatco sells organic and responsibly made tallow-based skincare products. For centuries, humans used tallow in skin moisturizers and healing bombs, but unfortunately, the topical application of these fats seemed to stop around the same time that animal fats stopped being considered part of a healthy diet. A lot of modern skincare products do more harm than good by stripping your skin of its natural oils. Let's change that. You can try them out now at fatco.com and get 15% off your order by using my promo code INTERNET. Go to the internet says it's true.com slash deals for the link. Let's get back to the story. And before we return to the 1920s, I want to briefly talk about something that happened in the 1970s. In 1969, the Nixon administration decided to wage war against the marijuana that was flowing over the border from Mexico. And one of the methods that the U.S. government came up with was to help Mexico spray the pot fields with a chemical agent that was intended to make the consumers of the product nauseous. That idea was eventually scrapped, but instead they started sending $15 million a year to Mexico's drug authority for them to spray herbicides on the crop, namely a chemical called Paraquat. The result was that Mexican weed growers just grew plants poisoned with Paraquat and sold them anyway. Paraquat was known to cause kidney, liver, lung, and heart failure and was later linked to Parkinson's disease. The program extended well into the Reagan administration who used the chemical on fields within the United States. It's unknown how many Americans were disabled or killed from smoking marijuana laced with Paraquat, but the chemical still exists today and is one of the most common industrial weed killers on the market. So in the 1920s, we can sort of think of the denaturing of alcohol for the purpose of making it horrible to drink as sort of a test run. On New Year's Day 1927, 41 people died in New York's Bellevue Hospital from drinking industrial alcohol that had been poisoned with denaturing agents. People were getting alcohol anywhere they could, and stealing this industrial alcohol was some of the most available, easiest liquor to score. 60 million gallons of the stuff were stolen annually for drinking leading to deadly results. The New York City medical examiner, Charles Norris, condemned the denaturing practice at a press conference. He said, quote, The government knows it's not stopping drinking by putting poison in alcohol, yet it continues its poisoning processes, 
heedless of the fact that people determined to drink are daily absorbing that poison. Knowing this to be true, the United States government must be charged with the moral responsibility for the deaths that poisoned liquor causes, although it cannot be held legally responsible." End quote. The first year, there were thousands of hospitalizations and 400 deaths attributed to drinking the poisoned alcohol. If people didn't die, they were often facing paralysis or blindness. The second year, there were 700 deaths, and it kept rising. Washington, D.C. Roosevelt brings back beer and wine. By signing the Cullen Bill in a simple ceremony at the White House, the president has made it a law. It permits the sale of three and two-tenths percent beer and wine after April 6th. And in 23 states, the return of the foaming liquid at five cents a glass is assured. Rushed through the House and Senate, the measure marks the termination of a 14-year drought. When Prohibition was finally lifted in 1933 through the 21st Amendment, the damage had been done. And it's tough to say how many people died from this, but conservative estimates put the number at around 10,000 people over the period of 13 years. On the larger end, some people claim it to be around 30,000 deaths. One of the reasons it's difficult to say is because some of these deaths could be due to alcohol poisoning by its very nature. And like a lot of government policies, this affected the poor population in a much larger way than the wealthy. People who could afford to drink could attain liquor that was made without the industrial ethyl alcohol and would be fine. But for the average working class American, if they wanted to drink, the only available alcohol had been poisoned by the government. So that's the story of how our government poisoned a bunch of Americans and how prohibition didn't work. Well, now it's time for the part of the podcast where I call a friend, and today I'm calling my comedian friend Leslie Battle. Leslie was on one of the very first episodes of this show back when it was called Tell Me What to Google, and before we ever did a quiz, I just brought her on to chat. So let's bring her back on and let's play a quiz and see if she knows what I didn't know. Leslie Battle, it is so good to see you. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. I had you on, um, I'm not sure if you've been on this podcast, but you were on my show Joke Story Trick, I believe, right? Is that what we did? Maybe. Look, I got to tell you, my memory is like, I can remember what I <laughs> ate today, but and people are just like, hey, remember when you did such and such? And I'm just like, ooh, uh, maybe. Especially like, as it pertains to like the last three years, like the last three years have just, so it's okay that no one remembers anything because we've all been living through trauma. Well, I absolutely kind of disappeared and there's still a few people because like I stopped performing and like everybody stopped performing, but like I yeah. stopped performing and everybody's like, yeah, I just kind of feel like you're doing a lot of stuff out of town. It's like, I literally haven't been on a comedy stage since 2019. Yeah. I had you on a show in 2019, right? And, and this, we, I had, I booked the, um, we did a thing in Gahanna. The Creekside Jazz Festival. I booked, yes. I booked some comedy for that and you were awesome, yeah. by the way. You just killed that. Oh. Um, I'm glad that I, I had you bat and clean up for that one because absolutely you just knocked that one out of the park and I'll have you back well, as soon you. as they ask me back to do a show if you're going to do comedy again like I don't well, know are you I'm just comfortable not it. doing comedy right now? I'm I'm thinking about it. I just, you know, I I I have so little patience for people. So <laughs> <laughs> comics are people. So Yeah. Uh, but I don't know. I mean, I've I've been to a couple of shows and a couple of folks who, you know, I really consider consider like mentor types 
are like, but we need your voice. And I'm just like, uh, <laughs> not putting the weight of the world on me, but okay. Yeah. You know, and it's one of those so, things like if you're not ready, then you're not ready. And, and, you know, no one should be shamed for that. I have certainly had points in my career where I'm like, yeah, I'm okay. Like not doing shows right now because I'm yeah. enjoying other stuff. And that's the way yeah. I have felt uh, sort of through all of last year. Like I did, I performed a fair amount last year, but not a, not as much as I did in 2020. Like 2020, I was down here in my basement doing virtual shows every week. And uh, yeah. it was tough work. But 2021, I was just like, you know what? I'm just going to enjoy being home. I'm going to enjoy my wife and my dogs and like chilling. And, and that's, I'm at that spot now where I'm a little bit itching to get back out. So I had some personal stuff I was really good at hiding ah. and I, a, a part of me wanting to stop being on stage is I got to a point where I felt like I was selling my soul with certain people okay and I had you know I, I, I've got some you know unresolved trauma stuff that I'm working through I've got uh you know some some stuff that I was working through and so it ended up being a really opportune time for me to start really you know, looking internally and like, I'm a military vet. And so I've been working with the VA to try to get my disability thing lined up. Mm -hmm. And it, it can be unnerving. It can be very frustrating because that particular branch of bureaucracy is unfortunately not as standardized as you would think it would be. Yeah. And so it, it just kind of gave me an opportunity to focus on these things with my health and now that I'm in a much better place as far as, you know, working on my emotional health and my physical health, it's just kind of like, okay, well, I could see maybe, you know, coming back on my own terms and being, you know, bringing the lessons learned with me. And, and but doing stand -up, absolutely. I think doing stand up on a stage is it's tough for that to be congruent with a healthy emotional state. Um, sometimes like when you, well, when you are requiring approval from strangers in order to, for what you do, to go well. Um, yeah. It's difficult to reconcile that sometimes with if, if you have other, you know, um, struggles going on, which I totally understand. I've been there too. So, well, and the other thing is that it takes a special person to recognize that even though you're an entertainer, you're not always on. Yeah. And so there would be times when well, I want to have serious conversations because, of course, a couple of years ago, everybody was having some really serious and needed conversations. And I'm wanting to join in these serious conversations. And they're like, ah, oh, joke girl got something to say. Mm. And it's just kind of like, OK, but I'm a 50 year old military veteran who raised kids. Like, yeah, I do have something to say, but you just want me to be silly right now. I don't want to be silly right now. Yeah. So it, it gets kind of complicated if you literally have people who can't understand that you may have cogent thoughts about pertinent issues. Well, Leslie, that brings me to our, our quiz today. Um, and now I, I, feel, uh -oh. I feel bad because for our first question, uh, the way that I have it written here is that we're playing for a joke. Uh, okay. so, <laughs> there's, so normally this is a pretty light stakes. Like normally it's not a big deal, but now I feel bad. Like if you get it wrong, like you're going to have to tell a joke. So it's kind of like, hey, perform. <laughs> do, do well, the, no, do I the can performance do it. thing, I joke girl. Um, so, okay. So basically you don't know what this topic is about just to, to catch you Correct. up. Um, we have just talked for 10 minutes or 12 minutes about a topic. You don't know what it is. And so this is my opportunity to find out if you know what I did not know going into this. And here is your question. So for the first question, if you get it right, I have to tell you a joke. If you get it wrong, you have to tell me one. Okay. In the 1920s, the U S government inadvertently killed 10,000 citizens. 
Which one of these describes how they killed 10,000 citizens? Was it A, hiring them for railroad work and then not feeding them, B, experimenting with human flight, or C, poisoning industrial alcohol? I think it was C. You are correct. You're one for one. It is C. They were I trying actually to start... heard about this. Yeah. How did that, you hear about it? Um, um, I forget. It was a TV show. I've been watching all kinds of wild stuff on, on whichever streaming service. But they were talking about how when Prohibition came, um, there were people who were drinking industrial alcohol to get drunk. And so they decided to put something in it, and which they hoped would keep people from drinking it. But instead, people just died. And they were just like, oh, that sucks. Yeah. Bob died. And they were still drinking it. Yeah. yeah. And, and you know what? One of the things I brought up in this episode is like, this is a time when people were drinking Sterno, like the things right. that you see at buffet table. Like, right. So it was kind of not a smart call to say like, oh, this will keep them from drinking. You know, let's make it taste bad. No, they're drinking Sterno. They'll, they're going to find a way to get drunk. Uh, didn't, yeah, and, didn't Coca-Cola still have cocaine in it at this time? I, I don't know, but it could have been like, you know, I kind of feel like there's there's been a whole lot of discovery since then. It was like, oh, we shouldn't have done that. Yeah, <laughs> but I don't think you ever got the government to say we shouldn't have done that in this case. It was just sort of like, oh, yeah, that well, may know. have happened, uh, but it was to serve the greater good. Right. Which was, you know, now that I think about it, because it was it was about a person and this person was so pro prohibition that they were the one that suggested it. Yeah. Oh yeah. Like Volstead was the guy's name, but there were, there was, there was a whole group. It started as a religious movement and it was a whole group that grew and grew. And the thing that shocks me the most about when I, when I researched this this week was they had a lot of support in both of the major political parties. Uh So like, I feel like if this happened today, you would have one party that would grasp the idea and one party that wouldn't. And For generally, the sake of there, fighting the other, yeah. there would be consensus, right? Like, yeah, but this was one of those things where it's like this prohibition group, they had their their hooks in both parties. And so it passed with like 67 percent support in the House and 70 something percent in the Senate. It was like it was pretty widely accepted because they had done a really good job of saying this is the boogeyman of the day, right? This is right. why. That, yeah. Yeah. It's like immigration today. They're like, immigration is yeah. why we have this problem, this problem, and this problem. Back then it was like alcohol is why we have, you know, um, homelessness and joblessness and, and um, you <laughs> right. know, th- all these but things. They're not talking about the people who won't hire people because they heard they were an alcoholic. <laughs> right. Yeah. They heard, they heard, right. They, they saw on Fox news. Um <laughs> I owe you no, a it joke. was church back then. They yeah, weren't church. doing Fox News. <laughs> That's true. My, there was my no. pastor told me that Mr. Smith was seen. Yeah, it was at a still. It was <laughs> piastic Protestantism is what they what where this all started, which is kind of like Lutheranism, um, which which is what wow. I learned. So here's your joke. A man walks into a library and orders a hamburger. The librarian says, This is a library. The man apologizes and whispers, I'd like a hamburger. Because it's a because it's a library. Oh God, these are awful. It's quiet. I found it. That was me laughing quietly. (laughs) I found like I was looking up jokes this week, and I found a website that had you know like joke book type jokes, and I'm like, oh cool, let me read through some of these and see. And it was like badly translated joke book jokes. So it's like they started. I bet it was so entertaining. So here's one of those jokes. Why are bananas curved? The answer is to fit into the skin, which is curved. (laughs) I read that like seven times, like trying to understand. Here's another one. What did the hammer say to the thumb? Nice to meet you. Uh, 
So and then there are some where you can tell what they were supposed to say. Right. So here's a joke. A drummer and a bass player jump off a skyscraper. Boom, boom. So like that one is supposed to be like three people and then but up bump, I think. So it's supposed to be like oh, a, like no, a rim shot. But, no, but they just translated but no. as boom, boom. And then <laughs> and then um, honestly, when you said boom, boom, I just thought it was them hitting the ground. Yeah, well, that's the joke. Like, but but there's they. Yeah, man. OK, let me see. Uh, here's what do you call a deer with no eye? And then it just says no idea. But the joke is uh, no idea, right? Like that's what makes it a joke. Oh, no idea. But they wrote no idea because it lost in translation. And then finally, I never did find this one out. I uh, never did figure this out. It said, uh, Daddy, where is Albania? And then he says, you have to ask Grandma. She cleaned here the last time. Oh, geez. So that one I read a bunch. Do you get what that's even? I don't even get what the joke is supposed I, to be. I think it's just dad is thinking that the kid lost something or whatever. Like Albania is maybe a toy or something. Right. And so, oh. well, your grandma cleaned up, so I don't know. Yikes. Yikes. Yeah. So I, I had I fun I mean, with I those. absolutely understand why you didn't get it, though. Because yeah. it's not. <laughs> that's I, not. I, I didn't get any of the, but it was entertaining. So, all right. You're one for one. Let's keep moving. Question two. And for this question, we are playing for an admission of something we do well. So instead of an admission of guilt or an admission of shame, this is an admission of pride, which is oh. incredibly difficult for me. Um, this, <laughs> that's why I made this, uh, you know, like a punishment if you alone. get it wrong. So <laughs> if you get it right, you've got to tell us something you're good at. And if you get it wrong, I've got to tell you something I'm good at. Okay. Even though prohibition was repealed in 1933, Mississippi didn't allow people to legally buy a drink until what year? Okay, Ooh, so okay. it didn't get to Mississippi for a while. A, 1938, B, 1966, or C, 2020? I'm going to go with 1966. Any reason for that answer? Because I think the 38 is too soon. <laughs> and the 2020 is too late. Yeah. Well, you are correct. Trust your gut. 1966 what? it is. And, and get this. Mississippi instituted its own prohibition all the way back in 1908. So like 12 years before prohibition uh, nationwide, they had their own prohibition, which means that it actually took them 58 years to overturn their booze ban. Um, and even now you can still find dry counties across the state. So we're in so, Columbus, Ohio. And as you probably know, Westerville was a dry county when I first moved here up until just a I few did years not know ago. That. Well, it was there was a it was a big seat of the temperance movement, uh, Westerville, Ohio. I'm not sure huh. which group was housed there, but yeah, there was a big temperance movement station in, in Westerville. And so that was a dry county up until just a few years ago. And I'm sorry, you look like you were about I grew to tell up me something. was dry. Was it really? Yeah. And I'm not sure when they started allowing out. Well, first, I, I do remember maybe when I was like seventh, eighth grade, like we started getting Chuck E. Cheese's and they would allow alcohol sales like in restaurants. Now, wait, the thing at is, Chuck E. Cheese's? Huh? At Chuck E. Cheese? Yeah. Yeah, like at the for, kids? for the parents, I guess. I, <laughs> I mean, you know, I've you're never... a kid, you, but you you know that al you know when when adults are drinking alcohol. But that was the thing. <laughs> like, even though it was a dry county, all of the counties around it weren't. Yeah. And so you know how, like, when you go to places and you see the firework things, like right on the the jurisdiction line, like if it's yes. a county line or whatever, it was the same thing with liquor stores. Oh yeah. Any direction you went out of the county, there was a liquor store right across the county line in the, in the adjoining county. Well, it's like anyone in Ohio driving to Michigan for weed. You know, it's right. Yeah, yeah. It's like every exit has giant billboards for like the first 
50 miles into Michigan because they know that everyone's coming from Ohio to go there specifically for that. So, so you want to hear another funny story about alcohol in East Texas? Yes, I do. I'll try to be quick. No, you're fine. So my older brother was born in 1965. He's, he's just shy of five years older than me. Right. So when he was 18, the drinking age in Texas was 18. A couple of years later, they changed it to 21 and the effective date was September 3rd. It had to be September 3rd because his birthday is September 2nd, right? Yeah. So basically he went and got a bunch of alcohol while he was 20 and he wasn't legal for a day. So wow. there was a day that he wasn't legal to drink and then it was his birthday. No, it was September 1st. Because his birthday is September 2nd. So it, they changed the age on September 1st, but he had already stockpiled alcohol. And then the the on the 2nd, he was... He was fine. He was, uh, yeah. <laughs> so Isn't that I've, crazy? I've been to East Texas, and I know driving, like, I've done some tours down there and then and then the western part of Louisiana. They have those Where drive... Where did you go? Oh, my gosh. I've been everywhere from, like, um, so, like, Dallas to, like, Texarkana to yeah. Natchitoches. To... Do you ever go to Tyler? Are you saying mm -hmm. Nacogdoches? Well, no, <laughs> in Louisiana, it's Nacogdoches. Oh. So it's oh, it's pronounced okay, Nacogdoches, but it's spelled Nacogdoches. But Nacogdoches is in Texas. And yeah. they're on the same, like if you drive on one highway, you can see both of them, but they're pronounced right. two different ways. Right. They're spelled a little bit different. Uh, but yeah, I have been to Tyler to answer your question. I've been to Tyler several times. Yeah, that's where I graduated high school. Oh, All is that right? From years ago. Yep. Yeah, I've performed at U University of Texas Tyler a few times. Um, oh, okay. So, yeah. yeah, I've been there. I know what that area is like. But what I was going to say is, I know that driving out there, and I don't, I, I don't know if it happens in Texas, but once you hit Louisiana, they have like drive-through alcoholic slushy places, and that just blows it. my mind. Like you can get an alcoholic slushy like you'd find on Bourbon Street, but like a drive-through. I believe with it. a straw. I don't Louisiana is wildin'. It, okay, it is. let's be real. Louisiana is absolutely wildin'. I, I don't understand. Like you're driving. What's happening? <laughs> well, they can they can first you got to have an open, open container, but they can just have a passenger and be like, well, I guess so my passenger, true. you can't tell my passenger not to have it. Now, <laughs> if they're driving with like a blow up doll or something like that and trying to pass it off as a passenger, that's different. There might be counties but, where that works. I don't know Louisiana that well. Might be a blow up <laughs> sheep in some counties. I'm really not sure. <laughs> They might be fine with it. Like, just just put it away for now. Yeah. Let me let me let me walk away. It's and like you can do whatever you it's want. It's like uh, Duke's a hazard out there. So I have to tell you something that is an admission of something I do well. And as I said, this I'm not good at this. It even it takes me a minute to even think about it. But I've had a couple episodes with work lately where I, I need to kick into a gear that I wasn't in. One of those examples was like when when uh, pandemic started. And I had to still make money. I built this studio. I started doing shows right away. And so I was able to see that pathway clearly and make a jump. I'm going through another one right now that I'm not ready to talk about yet, but professionally a big change, a big jump. And I just saw that I needed to do it. And I just didn't think, and I started doing it. Um, and that's sort of where I'm at. And I'm proud of myself for being able to do that. It's scary as hell. I hate change. I hate doing it, but I am able to pat myself on the back that I got it done. Um, and then I was able to like, you know, change to the, the different track. So I, and a lot of people can't, change, it's hard. It's really, know? it's really I mean, hard. And the older you get, the harder so it is. Right. So 
it's it's good to be able to, I <laughs> this kind of reminds me of um I was talking to somebody and when I first realized that bridges were a little flexible, right? Mm-hmm. There was something that I went over a bridge and like I felt, you know, the vid- bridge vibrating or whatever. And the person that I was talking to was, but think about it. Wouldn't you want the bridge to be able to flex if it was under stretch instead of breaking? Right. And it's just kind of like, huh. Yeah, that's a good analogy. That's like for people too, huh? And they're like, yeah, isn't that cool how I did that? <laughs> Nar. Yeah. <laughs> So you're two for two. And for question three, we are playing for a coveted, coveted, the internet says it's true sticker. Um, So yeah, fancy that's square and you can put it on stuff. Uh, The prohibition party actually had a mascot, just like the Republicans and the Democrats Hmm. have the elephant and the donkey. Which one of these was the prohibition mascot? Was it a, the camel B the kitten or C the parrot? I'm going to go with a, the camel. And any reason why you go with A? I'm just curious. Because camels are known for not drinking water for because they store the water in their in their in their hump, theoretically or whatever. So I could see the prohibition party being like, we we don't drink, the camel doesn't drink. Because I kind of feel like the parrot is associated with pirates. <laughs> so I kind of feel like it's not the parrot. The kitten seems too innocent. To okay. be, uh, you know, but the the camel is like a beast of burden, sturdy, you know, adult animal. Hmm. So that's that's what I'm going with. Well, you are correct once again. You are three for three. And dang it, Leslie, I thought that I made these questions harder than I did. Um, but you are killing it. So I have a little <laughs> bit of in- information about this. There was a political cartoonist, Thomas Nast. And he he gave the pachyderm to be the symbol of the Republican Party and the jackass for the Democratic Party. And he's the same wow. guy that made the camel for the Prohibition Party. And he drew it for Harper's Weekly during the last quarter of the 19th century. He chose it to represent the Prohibition Party because exactly like you said, camels don't drink very often. And when they do drink, they drink only water. And, <laughs> um, now, originally, it was a dromedary and it was okay. changed to the Bactrian camel, a different type of camel, because... The camel logo for cigarettes was a dromedary. Um, and I, I can't remember. It's been a few episodes. I did, a, I did an episode about camels. <laughs> and one, <laughs> I think dromedary is single hump and Bactrian is two humps. It might be the other way around. But it has to do with the number of humps on the camel, whether okay. it's a dromedary or Bactrian. So, yeah. And, you know, that's, oh, that's wild. the same guy. So, yeah, you're three for three. You're killing it and you're going to get a sticker. So question <laughs> four. This one, if you get it right, I'm excited about this one. If you oh, get goodness. it right. You have to tell us about your favorite teacher. Oh, goodness. And oh, you, I was such a teacher's pet for so many years. Oh, this too. is good then. I, might, I may, might make you tell me either way. And if you get it wrong, I'll tell you about mine. So okay. and this is a government question, so it's a little bit tough. Um, okay. The 18th Amendment prohibited. Prohi- prohibited. What did I just say? Prohibited. <laughs> pro- pro- prohibited the sale and distribution of liquor. The 21st Amendment repealed prohibition. What was the 22nd Amendment? Was oh, it? Oh, I should know this. So think back to those, um, those joint knowledge online um, classes or that you had to take for, for in, in military. <laughs> I don't know how much training you had to do on, on amendments. No, I absolutely, like, I just saw. <sighs> so I'll give you multiple choice. Amendment. Oh, okay. Yeah, let me have that. <laughs> so it's, it's one of these. It, A, this is the 22nd Amendment. It limits the president to two terms. B, 
it prevented illegal search and seizure, or C, it stipulated Supreme Court justices can't have wives that promote violent overthrows of the government? No! As much as I wish it was C, I'm going <laughs> to toss that one out. I got a 50-50 shot here. I actually think that it's B. B, the, the prevention of illegal, illegal search and seizure. Yeah. I'm sorry, Leslie, the answer is A. It limits the president to two terms. The, uh, the prevention of legal search and seizure is a Fourth Amendment, I believe. I should double check that. Okay. Okay. No, you, that, that, okay. Yeah. No, I, that makes more sense. Yeah. No, Fourth Amendment still, is legal search and seizure. Um, I, but I, I I'm happy that, that the, you got that one wrong. I thought because, the term limit one was sooner. Yeah. I, I just... I'm, I was really kind of hoping that you got this one wrong because I wanted you to tell me about your favorite teacher because you, your eyes lit up when, when I said that. So I want to hear about at least but one. If, if you so can just many. choose one, maybe. Well, how about I just talk about my elementary school years? Okay, that's because fine. That limits it to, you know, what? That's nine years, eight actually years? Actually, three. It oh, actually three years. Okay. Three. Because the school that I went to, I'm not sure why they were doing this, but when I was in second grade and third grade, I had the same teacher and they had two grades in the same room and the same thing for fourth and fifth. And I had the same teacher, but they oh. had two grades in the same I thought, room. I thought maybe you were saying like you, you were like a Doogie Hauser and you went to high school after three years, like third grade <laughs> no, and like straight no, to high school. Not, not, not quite. But I was tested when I was in first grade and determined to be gifted. And it was so I just a favorite memory of mine. OK, you were talking about humble bragging before. So yeah. this is 50 year old Leslie bragging on six year old Leslie. So <laughs> I started reading when I was three. Wow. I started reading um, billboards. And so my grandmother heard this little voice from the back seat saying stuff like Steamatic and <laughs> Burger King. <laughs> and she's it. like, what? And so then she started like giving me little kids books and I could read them because yeah. I, I was a I was a Sesame Street Electric Company kid. Mm -hmm. Like I was doing all that stuff, you know, in the 70s. And so when I was in first grade, I was already reading on the sixth grade level. Wow. So my teacher was testing me and she gives me a book and I read through, you know, a passage and she gives me a, a second grade book, read through a passage. She hands me another book, hands me another book. I'm reading no problem. I'm reading no problem. And um, she gives me the sixth grade book. And not only did I read it without a problem, but as I was saying the last like three or four words of the sentence, I looked up at her and said them to her instead of reading them. You had them, you'd memorized them. <laughs> <laughs> and she left the room. Oh, that's amazing. well, I was one of those kids who stayed in touch with their teachers. And so when I was like in fifth grade or so, I was talking to Ms. Moore, Susan Moore, she's the sweetest lady. And she was telling me how when I did that, she was a little freaked out. <laughs> and she went to the principal and said, I've got a kid who can read on the sixth grade level and basically memorize the passage. What can I teach her? That's awesome. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. I knew you were and destined for great things. The army. Uh, so Susan Moore, uh, that's Susan for you. Moore. I don't know if Susan Moore is still with us anymore, but um, that is a fantastic story. Yeah, I have so many good teachers and it seems like all my favorite teachers growing up. Now, obviously, I was a band kid, so all my band teachers were amazing. Um, but but my English teachers, I think, had the largest impact on my education. Um, just, I, I grew up in Urbana, Ohio, which is like a tiny little town, um, an hour from here. I know Urbana. I Do used to live in, Pequ in Piqua. In so Piqua. Okay. Urbana. Yeah, absolutely. That's Urbana's halfway between here and Piqua. Uh, yeah. and, and, um, 
Urbana had just a fantastic English department. And so all my English teachers were great, but there was one teacher that was my second grade teacher, Miss Faulkner, Judith Faulkner. Judy Faulkner was, was my second grade teacher. Great teacher. But when I, um, when I started becoming successful doing magic, she found out my address and mailed me a card to let me know how proud she was. And that's like probably my most prized possession um, to know. Like, think about, you know, you were talking about how you stay in touch with your teachers. Like, this wasn't a teacher that I had necessarily stayed in touch with, but I still right. remember, you know, all my teachers. Um, so that meant a lot to me. If I was going to talk about my all time favorite, I had my very last quarter at Ohio State, an English professor who taught Shakespeare, who absolutely changed my life, just changed the way that I think about the world, um, the way I think about people and love and all this stuff. And I did not do well in her class, but I really <laughs> enjoyed the class and went to her office hours to talk with her about, you know, issues and and all this different stuff. And the the one thing that I'll always remember is that I did not understand what love was at that point, you know, like how mm. to define it. And she said, all it is is wanting good for someone else. And whenever yeah. like I thought about it that way, it's so simple and it seems diminutive to the idea of love, but it's not. It's exactly what love is. We could and have a whole discussion about what love actually means. <laughs> I'm telling you, like it's I, it I meant really, the most to me. My thought and not to to discount because I absolutely agree with your teacher. That is I I think I I think oh boy, here we go. <laughs> I think that one of the greater issues that humans, especially industrialized humans, have is we're kind of taught to keep things as simple as possible. But we're dealing with issues and concepts that are not simple. Sure. And if you were asking me, which you're not, but you are, love, I believe, is kind of an umbrella term for a range of emotions. I agree with that. Yeah, I can I can see that. Yeah. So instead of us saying, well, this is adoration and this is devotion and this is loyalty and this is this, we just go, well, I love this person. And I think one of the other things that I that I'm learning is other languages sometimes will take a word like love and have break off words to mean things that we do not have words for. Right. And I, I think right. that's awesome when I learn that another language has like six different words for what we have one word for. And, and right. those six different words are there to describe these nuanced little break off areas of a word, which which is beautiful. Um, so I completely take your point And I agree. And I agree. Uh, we've, we're, we're four for or three for four. You're killing it, <laughs> Leslie. And there's only one more question. And this one is for all the marbles. So if you get this oh, question wrong, okay. I'm going to ban you from this podcast. You'll never be asked on again. If you get it right, I'd be happy to have you on. Okay. Here's your question. What is something that makes you optimistic for the future? Mm, let's see. Um, so I'm not a person who really buys into this pitching people of different generations against each other. You mean and like Gen X, really Gen Z, boomers? Right, yeah. right. I I really honestly believe that young people now, um, and 
I, I, I have a little guilt attached to this because like every generation is like the young people will fix it. The young people will fix it. But I really think that with these conversations that we've been having and the transparency and representation of people in groups that weren't represented before and the normalizing of lifestyles or, you know, appearances that are, are really trying to do away with so much of the labeling that was used to persecute people. I really think that children that are growing up now, and even like my kids, like my youngest is 21, and it's, 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 it's both encouraging, but also kind of heartbreaking, because at least in, in conversations I've had with my daughter, like her level of realism about the toxicity of some people and the state of the actual, you know, world and everything, it, it, they're very, they're very informed. Yeah. More than you know, we were. These, yeah. And I think that what gives me hope about it though, is where we have a lot of stuff that we have to unlearn just because we grew up in the, I've heard it referred to as late 1900s and it bothers me, but <laughs> it's where we're at. <laughs> <laughs> that's hurtful isn't it? it it is hurtful like people who were born in the 1900s oh right. feels, it feels bad my buddy told me the other day he has two very young children and he's like my girls are closer to college age than we are and i'm like "Ooh, yeah. i don't like hearing that at all right like you know my daughter was born in 2000 yeah. she's gonna be 22 this year wow what yeah. you know but i i really think that even you know, with the socioeconomic, you know, strata still remaining somewhat constant, that the information that, you know, young people have available to them and the integration of different people and the awareness of, and, and just, you know, the correction of history makes me very hopeful that people are really kind of moving toward actual respect of each other, regardless of whatever their genetics or their social, like we're, we're really coming to understand the systems that were at play that helped to build the situation that we're in now. Absolutely. And I mean, I'm, I'm a very firm believer that you can't fix something you haven't identified. So now that we've identified some of these things, you know, people have a much more informed choice as to whether or not to try to repair them or not. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> we can't fight Voldemort if we're not allowed to say his name. Exactly. Uh, so that is a correct answer and a wonderful <laughs> answer. And I will give you that one. So you're welcome back on the podcast anytime. I was a little nervous. I was afraid I was going to say something like cheesecake and, cheesecake. and be banned. <laughs> what makes you optimistic <laughs> for the future? The same thing as the Golden Girls. Uh, Leslie, hey, I make a wonderful cheesecake. Do not get it twisted. That, that's a, that sounds awesome right now. Um, I just came from a um, a three year old's birthday party, and Aww. some cheesecake sounds like exactly what I need after a couple drinks. So I am fantastic. Right, Leslie Battle. It has been a pleasure to catch up with you. Thank you. You too. Well, that's all for this week. Thanks to Leslie Battle for being my guest. Here's a kid who is suffering from prohibition until he turns 21. Thank you for listening to The Internet Says It's True. 
don't forget to join up on Patreon if you want to see the unedited video of the guest appearance or to hear bonus episodes. You can do that at patreon.com slash Michael Kent. Also, if you learned something that you didn't already know from the show, please visit iTunes and leave us a review with five stars and a few words. That's the rule. You gotta do it. That helps us a ton because that's how the algorithm works to get the podcast suggested to more people. And that way we can keep learning something new if the internet says it's true. The internet says it's true. We'd like to thank the Patreon subscribers whose monthly contributions help to make the show possible. Sean Brown, Catherine Morgan, Bryce Swanson, Eugene Anderson, Matt McVeigh, Jim Martin, Joanne Martin, and the show's official Emperor Kick Track. The show is written and produced by me, Michael Kent. The theme song is by Finite Music Forge, and additional music this week was from Bruno E., Ease Jammy Jams, and William Rosati. All audio clips in this episode are used for education and commentary and used under Fair Use Title 17 USC Section 107. You can listen to past episodes by searching for The Internet Says It's True wherever you get your podcasts, and you can see bonus content at patreon.com slash Michael Kent.